Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Sia Linarduzzi, an editor at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is back with me after a week of getting her allotment in order, no doubt. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Sia. I wouldn't exactly say it was in order, I'm afraid. Have you not you know, been preparing for the winter? I've been trying. One does what one can. That's all I'm <laughs> going to say. Enough, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good to have you back. Um, we should mention just very briefly that um, almost as if Halloween were around the corner we have a rather spooky tale uh, in this week's issue don't we we do have a brilliant spooky tale involving i mean i think maybe we shouldn't give it all away involving the sitwells i mean the um, sitwells are scary at the best of times this, this adds a whole new dimension <laughs> and a portrait this is before the famous eccentric sitwells isn't it the sitwells and a portrait and a ghost who comes to give you cold kisses if you sleep in a particular bedroom is that right that's right the tip to, to keep a ghost away, always put a hat on the chair because apparently a ghost that sits on a hat is lost. <laughs> there you go, you're welcome. Sound, sound advice. Now, coming up on this week's show, a new biography of George V, who ruled Britain and Empire from 1910 to 1936, suggests that he wasn't as dull as we have always thought. A Philistine, yes, almost certainly, but dull, no. Uh, A.N. Wilson himself, a renowned royal biographer, will shed some light on this apparently radical new life. But first, Lucy, over to you. Well, unless you haven't seen or heard any news at all over the past couple of weeks, you will know that COP26 is taking place in Glasgow from this weekend, where around 200 of the countries of the world will try to address the climate crisis, where it stands, what to do about it. This sounds, oddly, like quite a straightforward thing to do. We know what the problems are, though, of course, they are many. We just need to sort them out like humans do with our ingenuity, our technology and our behaviours. But, of course, it is not at all straightforward. It has been hard enough convincing everyone that climate change even exists, let alone agreeing on what to do about it. And it's something that we collectively find very difficult to look at head on. 
In the past couple of years, there's been a shift in realisation driven by many people, the implacable Greta Thunberg, for instance, and Extinction Rebellion here in the UK. One of the writers in the US who got people to sit up and take notice is David Wallace Wells with his essay, later a book, The Uninhabitable Earth. He's written for us this week on four new books on the climate crisis and approaches to it. And we're delighted that he's joining us today to talk us through some of this. David, many thanks for coming. My pleasure. It's great to be here. So all the books you've reviewed, they come at this from very different angles, don't they? From the sort of almost shockingly practical to the meditative. You started with The Latter Approach, which is a book of essays edited by Rupert Reed, who's an Extinction Rebellion spokesperson, and Jem Bendel, an activist, and the book's called Deep Adaptation. So this is about how politically and psychologically we might react and adapt to climate disruption. Is that right? Yeah, and it's something that I've been thinking about, certainly since I wrote my book, and even going back further than that, which is to say, you know, we've spent a fair amount of time and attention on um, what the science tells us to expect, and what we need to do to avert the worst case scenarios, and all of that sort of technocratic and scientific language. Um, And I think we've spent relatively less amount of time thinking about all of the ways beyond the direct climate impacts, our lives will be affected if the world is indeed transformed as much as, you know, we expect it to, because we're we're moving so much more slowly than we should be. And that means um, there are many changes, I think, afoot and coming down the, down the pike beyond what we can read about in nature and science. Um, And I think, you know, this book reckons with a a somewhat bleaker picture of, um, really dramatic climate change than I personally expect to unfold. But I think it raises an enormous amount of really important questions about not just, you know, are we going to build some seawalls, but what is it going to mean for our geopolitics to be reckoning with, you know, um, many more climate migrants? What is it, um, what, what will it mean for our relationship to nature to come to terms with the fact that, you know, the world's tropical forests may soon begin emitting more carbon than they absorb, therefore sort of going from being our climate friend, um, helping us in the fight against temperature rise to being um, sort of fighting on the other side against us. Um, You know, what will it mean for those communities located in particular parts of the world that have spent centuries um, cultivating food in very particular ways to have to abandon all of those, um, all of those, practices and make new cultures for themselves. I have uh, my wife's family is from Sicily. We were just there for a little bit in the summer and her family farm, they're totally redoing their entire crop cycle, um, moving away from, you know, classic Mediterranean uh, crops and basically turning themselves into a North African farm, which may not sound all that dramatic. And in the grand scheme of things, you know, isn't all that dramatic, but when you think about it as unfolding, you know, in every family, in every community, in every town, in every nation of the world, it represents a quite profound transformation, even putting aside the terrifying threat of, you know, wildfire and, and hurricane and um, all the rest of it. And beyond all that, we have to try to develop, cultivate, um, engineer a new form of politics that can allow us to live somewhat comfortably in a world defined by these um what looks to us at the outset, at least, to be quite, quite brutal impacts. And given how slowly we're moving to even respond to the crisis and, and reduce our emissions today, um, I think we're really, we're really far behind on that quite important project, too. And so does the book 
you say it's also quite meditative. Does it say what we should do or what we might do? Or does it just say, let's let's have sit and think about how this will affect us as a society? And as you say, and psychologically, um, not just, you know, what are we going to, what practical steps are we going to take? Yeah, it's, it's, um, there's, there's some threads of practical consideration um, woven through, but I think it's much more, um, you know, it's a, a group of essays, not just written by, um, by Rupert Reed and Jim Bendel, um, but a number of other people. Um, and altogether, they amount to a reflection on the, on the big question of just what, what could make a rewarding, fulfilling um, life, what could be a just human response and reckoning with um, response to and reckoning with um, a world that's been deformed by by this by this saga that we're all um, already living through today, but we'll be living through in, in probably much more dramatic ways in the decades ahead. There's the immense frustration and the rage, I suppose, of knowing that we we know what needs to be done and we could do it or most of it. You know, we have the technologies in many cases, and you point out that clean fuel and infrastructure is often cheaper than the old stuff, the fossil fuel stuff, but, but we're still not doing it. Yeah. One of the most amazing facts that I've come across just over the last year, and I've been, you know, it's hard to follow this story without being both simultaneously completely dystopian and, and incredibly utopian because things are moving so quickly. Um, progress is being made so rapidly and yet it is so woefully insufficient um, to the task at hand. But one of the most amazing facts that I've collected on the utopian side of the ledger is that, 90% of the world's population now lives in places where dirty energy is more expensive than clean energy. That means that, you know, for all those people who ask me um, if this whole problem can be solved and with capitalism, we can table that and maybe talk about it later. Uh, but, you know, if capitalism were actually working today, if markets were actually working, we actually would have solved the problem. Like the, the problem is, um, you know, has to do with political econ economy, incumbency, you know, um, resistance to change, our status quo bias. And, and I think more and more um, the disinterest in of people in the global north in the suffering um, and fate of people in the global south who are going to be hit much, much harder. Um, but the truth is that, you know, the if you are designing the future at a whiteboard today, um, you know, designing our future from scratch, it actually wouldn't be all that complicated to build a future that would be quite um, stable and comfortable climate-wise. It would be a little hotter probably because we couldn't make the changes as rapidly as science would, would like us to, but pretty quickly. And that means that um, we have to, on some level, look in the mirror for why, we, why we're in the pickle we're in now. We have the tools. We know what the work is. We're just not doing it. We need someone with the whiteboard, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose um, there's a distinction to be made, isn't there, between climate alarmists who are trying to sort of wake people up and focus attention, among which uh, presumably you count yourself, and doomsayers who just say, that's it, it's done, this is the end, nothing we can do, just lie down and give up. I think, you know, there are huge variations in rhetorical approach and emotional response, psychological response to the um, to the crisis as people perceive it. Um, but my own instinct and I, what I hope to communicate in the piece was that, you know, drawing hard lines between those groups and pretending that they represent, um, you know, categorically distinct responses is a, a little misleading and counterproductive, which is to say, there are times when I feel it's quite hopeless. There are times when I feel quite optimistic. And in the hours when I'm feeling optimistic, I don't want to say to myself, 
that hour this morning when you were feeling really gloomy, that was unacceptable. That was defeatist. That was fatalistic. It's all a human response to a, a dramatic existential set of questions. And so, you know, I look at, you know, for instance, Jim Bendel, he's not where I am. He thinks things are worse than I do. He thinks that we're farther along and, and, and there's less hope for a recovery than I do, but I don't want to, I don't feel comfortable telling him that his response is illegitimate, but I also think from a, you know, intellectual psychological perspective, we should be sympathetic to those who have slightly different responses and attitudes and perspectives than we do. It just isn't the case, for instance, that even me, a a sort of a climate alarmist in the global North, I'm going to have a more complacent perspective than an activist I spoke to a few weeks ago in Uganda, or one I spoke to a few weeks ago in India, who's living through much more intense um, impacts already today. And that doesn't mean that my perspective is dismissible from their point of view. It just means that everybody's going to be responding and reacting in their own way. Beyond all that, I do think that among the climate left, there has been for a generation or so a real concern that fear mongering would be counterproductive in the sense of pushing more and more people into, you know, what we've been talking about is the sort of doomist or or fatalist camp. Um, And, you know, having been having lived somewhat in that world for a few years now, I can't say that the number of people that that happens to is zero. Um, But when I look at the globe as a whole, I just still see so many more people who probably don't understand the scale of the crisis or the urgency of what's needed to be done. than I see people who are on the brink of falling into, you know, total despair and fatalism. And in given that, I just think that, you know, the value of, being alarming, there's still value there. You mentioned Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion. It's bigger than them, but they're they're a good representation of that movement. I think it's hard to say that, you know, on net, we're worse off because those people are screaming at the tops of their lungs um, than we'd be if they weren't. That's not to say that their particular politics is for everybody or appeals to everybody. But the job of an activist is not to appeal to every single person on the planet. It's to change the landscape of political possibility. And I think all around the world, climate activists over the last few years, um, taking a much more urgent and alarmist tone than those who came before, have really, really made a dramatic difference there. And as a result, you know, the climate future, while still pretty grim by the standards of our grandparents and even um, our childhoods, uh, looks a lot more comfortable and habitable than it did just a few years ago. You have a really nice illustration of it in the piece when you say you've met uh, both of the editors of that book. You've met Rupert Reed and Jen Bendel. And you have this lovely passage where you imagine placing yourself in a line of activists, like you said, you know, next to the activist in Uganda, you might look moderate. And then next to somebody else, you might look you might look more extreme. It's like the guy behind me is too cautious, but the next guy is, is too far out. But that doesn't matter if you're all on the same journey. Would it be fair to say that um, Andreas Malm, who wrote the next book, which is called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, he feels like a step further away from your position. Is that right? What what does he advocate? Thinking about it cerebrally from an intellectual distance, there's almost nothing that I can argue with in his position, which is essentially um, the continued production and burning of fossil fuel is having a catastrophic effect on um, the livability of the planet, which means in the long term, it is raising temperature levels and producing all of these cascading climate impacts that so worry us. But even in the short term, we're talking about, you know, air pollution produced from the burning of fossil fuels that according to one estimate, at least are killing 
8.7 million people a year, given that context. What is the responsible political relationship to that set of facts? And Andreas is a radical. He was a radical. He's been a radical for a long time. He's, he was radical before he wrote this book, How to Stop, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Um, but he wrote a book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline that is essentially an answer to that question, which is to say, okay, why don't we think about eco-terrorism? Why don't more of us who are really concerned about this crisis contemplate that possibility? He's not saying that you don't count as a climate activist unless you're willing to sabotage um, a pipeline. And he's not saying that everybody who wants to go to a climate strike or hear Greta speak needs to sign up for essentially a, a military revolutionary vanguard of which Andreas Malm is the leader or anything like that. But he's saying in a huge movement, numbering at least tens of millions and possibly hundreds of millions of people all around the globe as members. What's the argument against a few of those people who are, who feel the, the demands of urgency the most intensely from taking some more dramatic action? I don't myself feel ready to do that, but I also can't really argue with his, <laughs> with his perspective, which is to say that the crisis is much more intense than our response really um, acknowledges. It, um, it happens in Kim Stanley Robinson's book, The Ministry for the Future, changes eventually agonizingly brought about by, by many, many means. It's, it's a sort of exploration of what might happen in the very near future. But there are acts of eco-terrorism in there, and it sounds very similar because it's not about endangering lives. It's about pinpointed actions. Now, I think sometimes lives are endangered, but, but, but it moves the dial. Um, and it, it made me think he's... Kim, Sonny Robinson, for instance, principally known as a science fiction writer, but now he's written some very powerful climate fiction novels. It's called Cli-Fi rather than Sci-Fi. And so have lots of other uh, very eminent, well-established writers. I'm thinking about Richard Powers. I mean, it's happening everywhere. It's happening in film and art and, you know, uh, in, in every area. Do you think that, that dealing with that could help in, in focusing attention? Well, I think to some degree, it's likely to raise awareness and concern. It's a little bit ironic, given that a lot of our science fiction from generations past have you know, predicted a lot of the um, environmental catastrophes that we're seeing today. But I think it's a sign, all told, altogether, that you know, no aspect of our lives, internal or external, you know, um, political or imaginative, is going to endure untouched by the force of warming. That this is too big, too all-touching, too all-encompassing and too transformative a saga that we're living through that every aspect of our lives down to our most intimate culture is going to reflect it to some degree or other. You mention in your piece a dispiriting gender pattern, uh, not to mention class and, and race, among the climate alarmists uh, that you discuss. So um, a book by Catherine Hayhoe, uh, which you also review, um, called Saving Us, stands out for both the gender of his author and the tone of its argument. Can you tell us a bit about that one? Yeah, Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist. Um, she's from Canada, but she teaches in Texas in the US. And she's become most known for leading, I guess you could call them communication workshops or sort of staging conversations um, with parts of the American public, which at least the people who live in places like I do in New York um, tend to dismiss as um, 
climate deniers and um, disinterested in in the in the problem and the challenge of climate change. So um, she is an evangelical Christian, and she manages to find ways to talk to people who are essentially excluded from the discourse of the environmental left and find sources and areas of commonality with them. One of the things that she finds is that if you navigate around a, a few preliminary um, obstacles. Um, you know, avoid talking about it in a couple of very particular ways um, that almost everybody really is still concerned. You see that, you know, not just in her work, which is effectively anecdotal, but also um, in polling, which shows that, you know, especially if you're talking about the environment as an issue of clean air and clean water and, you know, safety from natural disaster, um, there's almost no one in any country in the world who's polled on those issues who, first of all, doesn't recognize the growing challenge represented by climate change, and secondly, doesn't want to do something to address it. And one of Catherine's valuable instincts is to try to get us outside of these rivalrous tribal boxes and think about our shared fate, both within the context of a single nation and the context of a, of a single planet. And the last book you've looked at for us is Geopolitics for the End Time, there's that phrase again, uh, by Bruno Massange, which you call a mind-bending tour of the world game post-COVID. What does that have to tell us about the climate crisis? He's a very interesting thinker who's, you know, just, I think, tends to throw a lot of thoughts at the wall, many of which are fascinating, um, not always in ways that fit perfectly together, but which are very provocative um, and it also just produces stuff at a, at a kind of an astonishing clip. So he, his book is um, focused more on the question of the pandemic and our response to it, but it extends um, that experience as a sort of a case study in the changing dynamic of global politics and global political competition. You know, the nations who responded most effectively, especially in the year um, before vaccines in the pandemic were those, especially in um, in Asia, who moved most quickly and most aggressively to clamp down on the pandemic without much concern about matters of, of liberty. And the truth is, in the West, we also responded in almost every country in ways that would have seemed to citizens a year or so ago, a year pri prior, to be quite trampling of liberty too. We just didn't do it quite quickly enough, which meant that the um, the virus was able to spread and circulate and really take hold. What that tells us about the climate crisis, I think is complicated. I think, um, you know, the lessons that we can draw on the pandemic are, are mixed, but I do think we would be foolish to disregard the simple fact that the world was totally upended almost on a dime out of concern for the safety of ourselves and our fellow humans. People who are hoping for dramatic change when it comes to the climate crisis should really take heart from that. You know, there, there are huge complications, you know, in the US and elsewhere, people fought against a lot of these um, policy restrictions. I think in many cases, they may have been even counterproductive. Um, certainly, you know, we can't really tell in the fog of war and we were doing the best that we could. But in any event, the most important lesson for me is that we moved rapidly. I mean, beyond the imagination of even the political leaders who ended up enacting some of these policies in, say, late February or even early March of 2020, we're, not, we're saying that things like measures like these were not possible. And then within a few weeks time, 
we had enacted them and then would go on living under those new conditions to some degree for months and, um, and maybe even longer in some cases, mm. depending on how you want to count. It was not a happy experience, <laughs> um, but nevertheless, it just showed that our political systems and our social systems were hair trigger responsive. And many people fighting for that kind of response on climate would have lamented a year or two before how little was possible, how little change um, people were willing to make, how resistant to root and branch redesign or rethinking um, almost all of our systems of everyday life were. And I think the pandemic does illustrate, and Bruno does a, a good job of, of, of walking us through a lot of this, just how much of a right turn this experience was for almost all of us. Um, now, it was also a major missed opportunity. You know, there have been some estimates suggesting that if the world had spent just 10% of what it was, what it spent on pandemic relief over five years, we could have assured the rapid green transition of the entire world's energy systems. So we made some bad choices there when it comes to climate. And we had a huge opportunity, which is a missed opportunity. But at the social and political level, you know, just contemplating what is possible I think that the pandemic crisis showed us that a lot more transformation is possible much more quickly than almost anyone alive in the sort of mature liberal democracies of um, the global north would have thought was possible. We all want to grasp onto hope, don't we? That's very much why um, Greta Thunberg said at Davos, as you know, in 2019, I think, I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. Um, But on a a final note, you say you're an optimist. Can we can we end on that note or should we end on that note rather? (laughs) Well, you know, I think that big question of how to relate to this crisis on an emotional level is a really complicated one. And my 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 glib response when most people ask me if there's anything to be optimistic about is that you know, this is not really a matter of like your mood. <laughs> if yes, you sure. done, it's not yeah. about how you feel, it's happening. <laughs> um, you know, I think two sets of facts are true at once. What we used to call business as usual outcomes, warming of levels of four or five degrees Celsius, um, emissions trajectories that included a, a return to coal and a dramatic um, expansion, in fact, of, of fossil fuel use over the course of the 21st century. Um real reluctance among the wealthy countries of the world towards an energy transition. Those futures, which seemed quite plausible just a couple years ago, they're not impossible, but they are much, much, much less likely. And what we now see as a likely future looks a lot better. And if we had a century, I'd actually be feeling pretty great (laughs) about how fast things were moving. Um, The problem is we don't have that time. Our timelines are really short and we've already effectively lost the opportunity to secure a climate future that our parents or grandparents would have recognized as comfortable. And indeed that would have been called comfortable by scientists as recently as 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And that is really quite tragic. It means that our future will be defined by climate change, not just by what we do in response to it. Um, it'll be both, but it won't just be by the response. We had an opportunity to have a future in which we re- we re-engineered the world to deal with this crisis and our future 
was the result of that re-engineering. It will be that, but it will also be the result of the climate impacts that we have failed to avoid. And that has been really about delay, which is a horrifying, maddening delay. The world really first um, started to wake up to this crisis in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. One landmark event in the U.S. at least was testimony before the Senate by a scientist named James Hansen, who's not just still alive, he's still alive and well and working. And at that point, when he testified in 1988, if we had started decarbonizing then, we would have had to decarbonize at a rate of about 1% or 2% per year to allow us to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, which is the, the, the optimistic goal of the Paris Accords. Mm. We're now in 2020, and we need to get to net zero by 2050, which means we had more than 125 years to do this job. And now we have 30. We don't even really have 30. <laughs> net zero, the net there is doing a lot of work. It means we're counting on somewhat speculative, what are called negative emissions or carbon removal technologies in the second half of the century to take huge amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere. I think we will be able to do that. I, I, don't, I, I trust that we will develop those technologies down the road. And if you take those out of the equation, we have to get to zero by about 2035. That is the result of the delay of the last 30 years, during which time more than half of all of the emissions that have ever been produced in the entire history of humanity have been produced. So we've done more damage to the planet since we knew all about it, since we knew all the risks, since we knew what we were doing. We've done more damage since then than we managed in all the millennia that came before. And that is ultimately, to me, one of the scariest things about the situation we find ourselves in, which is it's easy to be optimistic about the fact that everyone now talks about the need to address this crisis. There is no climate denial anymore. Yeah. But the experience of the last 30 years tells us that knowledge and anxiety and concern is insufficient. We need something much more powerful to actually move us into action. Now, I think we are starting to do that far too slowly, far too late. You know, we're, we're talking on the, on the eve of um, the COP26 conference in Glasgow. COP26, there have been 25 previous conferences like this. Yes. Um, and if you look at the curve of emissions over that time, it's uninterrupted. It's not, you know, oh, it's flattening. It's not going down fast enough, but it's, it's just going straight up. Now, I think there are, like I say, I think there are reasons to think we're about to hit that peak and about to bend the curve down. But, you know, ultimately, we haven't seen it yet. And that is really quite scary, which makes the bleak worldview, um, the really apocalyptic worldview of, of someone like um, Jim Bendel, for instance, um, again, seem, you know, ultimately not implausible. Um, you know, it's not exactly how I see the world, but it's a, it's a perfectly rational reading of, of the historical record and where we're heading to think that we're probably not going to do much at all. David Wallace-Wells, thank you very much for joining us. Still to come on the show, an extraordinary biography of a very ordinary man, in, in some respects at least, who wasn't supposed to become king. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Until now, writes A.N. Wilson in this week's TLS, George V has widely been regarded as one of the dullest monarchs, perhaps dullest human beings, who ever lived. So the title of a new biography by Jane Ridley comes as something of a surprise. George V, never a dull moment. A.N. Wilson calls it a wonderful book, indeed the best royal biography to be published since James Pope Hennessy's Queen Mary in 1959. Incidentally, Mary was George's wife, so there's a neat sense of a couple restored about the whole thing. We thought it only right then to ask Ian Wilson to explain himself on the show and to set the record straight on this most misunderstood man and king. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. The author of this book, Jane Ridley, she makes a very good distinction. You talk about the dullness. Uh, We'd always thought he was a very dull chap. Uh, She says, He's not dull, he's ordinary. And I think that's a a very useful distinction, not only when thinking about George V, but about lots of things, actually. It's a lovely noise of time passing there behind you. It is wonderful. (laughs) The time was passing behind you as you said it. It was. (laughs) This matter of dullness, let's go go straight in with that. You put it very well. You, You say, I suspect this not dull, ordinary distinction would, if absorbed into the soul, transform life itself. Um, And so this book is actually a book about innate, quiet decency, surviving in an indecent, rowdy world. Um, There's something quite affronting about this idea of his ordinariness, though, isn't there? I mean, it lays bare the whole lie that there's anything remotely exceptional about these people. He's not even exceptionally dull. He's not even exceptionally dull. You see, what they were becoming, George V and Queen Mary, were modern constitutional monarchs. They weren't modern people. 
they were Tories to the core of their being. Uh, they were extremely old fashioned. Um, she always wore the garter sash over her left shoulder, practically to do shopping. Um, he was incredibly old fashioned and despised people who lived in flats, for example. <laughs> but there's something decent about them. And when you consider the times they were living in, which was the era of Rasputin, the era of Lenin, the era of Hitler, um, it's rather refreshing to come across these people who were prepared to be ordinary and who were modest. Well, you put your you put your finger on something very very important because two of the defining uh, things of the reign of George V really, and one of the first is that uh, he, like his son George VI. Uh, he, he really wasn't supposed to be king. Um, and that second, that the the role that he inherited, you know, the country and beyond the empire, was in a state of tremendous upheaval. It was. As you say, he was not meant to inherit the throne. He was the second son. And if things had gone according to plan, he would have been a fairly competent but not very good naval officer, and then retired and become a country squire, probably in Norfolk. Uh, he was a very good shot. Um, Jane Ridley's very funny about the sheer incredible numbers of birds that he shot when he, was, when he was at Sandringham. He lived for 18 years, incidentally, in this horrible little house called York Cottage at Sandringham before he became the king. He loved it. He furnished it himself with bought furniture from Maples, the shop in the Tottenham Court Road. Mary, his wife, was an East seat, and I think it must have been absolute torture for her to have all this very, very dull furniture in this ugly little house. But um, Eddie, the brother, who was the Duke of Clarence, who was going to be the king, he's the one that lots and lots of people make um, speculations about. Some people think he had this secret gay life and he was part of the scandal, a homosexual brothel in Cleveland Street was investigated by the police. There was no evidence that uh, Eddie was gay at all, let alone as he went to this brothel. But I think the reason that people made up all these stories about him was that he was fundamentally um, a rather boring person, but not ordinary. And that's the difference, I think. Tell us a little bit about the um, the climate that, that George V ended up ruling in. Then you, you, you mentioned the Russian Revolution, and that was... Uh, that was a pretty pivotal moment in his rule. Um, we get a sense in in that particular moment, I think, of of his character in the way he in the way things panned out, uh, in the way he did or didn't make decisions. Can you tell yeah. us what happened and how Jane Ridley, in particular, paints the picture? He wasn't a very strong person in some ways. Many of the politicians, like Lloyd George and Astrid felt they could run rings around him and thought he was weak and feeble, which in some respects he wasn't. This was brought out at the time of the Russian Revolution. The first Russian Revolution, as I'm sure you remember, was a liberal revolution at the beginning of 1917. And the Russian emperor was persuaded to abdicate. He was put in comfortable house arrest uh, quite near St. Petersburg with his family. And at that point, the... Russian government, the liberal Russian government, assumed that he would go into exile and the likeliest place was England. In the, in the 19th century, the King of France, Louis XVIII, uh, Napoleon III, when they were sacked by their people, they just came to live in England. George V's secretary, a man called Lord Stamfordham, was horrified. 
he said, if you have those people, the Romanovs living here, it's going to encourage the march of republicanism, socialism, communism in Britain, which was quite a strong movement. It's hard for us perhaps to recollect how powerful the left was in the late 19th, early 20th century. There was a very strong move to, to get rid of the old order, particularly in Ireland. There was a very strong move to abolish the power or limit the power of the House of Lords. There was quite a strong movement to get rid of the monarchy. And the suffragettes were on the march. So, so there were lots and lots of things going on in Britain, which made the cowardly uh, secretary of George V, Lord Stamfordham, think, don't have those Russians here. As it happens, and this is where I think Jane Ridley tells a very fair story, as it happens, events were moving in Russia. They sent, uh, first of all, they sent an invitation to the British government. That was Lloyd George who sent that, not the king, saying it, it would be okay to have the emperor. Then the royal secretary sent a panicky message withdrawing that invitation. But by then, late 1917, of course, the liberal revolution had been overtaken by the Bolshevik revolution. And the Bolsheviks took a very different view of the Russian emperor, the Tsar, and his family. That's a mild way of putting it, yeah. A mild way of putting it. <laughs> they wanted to kill him, basically. But they certainly didn't want to um, allow him to leave the country. And obviously, if he had led the, uh, left Russia, the Russian exiles, the white Russians, the anti-Bolsheviks would have... Uh, formed a group around him and it would have become a resistance movement in Russia. So as we know, the Bolsheviks massacred the Tsar, Tsarina and the children in Yekaterinaberg. So in, in effect, George V couldn't have done anything about it, but it doesn't show him in a very good light because he was a coward and he thought of his own position before he thought that, uh, that of his cousin. The book isn't Jane Ridley. She's not saying he's an ordinary person in, in the sense of a sort of shining example, uh, a moral example for everyone. She really is just trying to show the person as the man as, as he was. She, mm. she shows him with all his flaws. And the fact that <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a fairly subtle distinction, I think, the fact that much of the time he was quite boring doesn't mean that he, wasn't, that he was primarily dull. It means that he was ordinary. He did things like if he was a country squire shooting birds when he was at home, um, sticking in stamps. He didn't have great conversation. He wasn't an aesthete. There are some wonderful moments in the book when they went to the National Gallery and uh, they heard the king calling out, come over here, May, this will make you laugh. What he was looking at was a Cezanne, the first Cezanne of the arrived at the National Gallery. It's like those stories of when you hear about T.S. Eliot coming over to read The Wasteland to the and royals the and they're David. all yawning and laughing because they find yes, it so yes. boring. Total Philistines. And then uh, um, the Prime Minister, Astrith, said, you know, Sir Thomas Hart is going to be age 70. Can you send him some congratulations? The man who made George V's fishing rods, who was also called Thomas Hart, you know, who wasn't age 70, was amazed to receive congratulations from the king uh, on reaching the age of 70. He was, in fact, aged about 45. Of course, the king hadn't heard of the other Thomas Hardy. He'd only heard of the fishing rods, Thomas Hardy. <laughs> you could almost feel sorry for him. Um, do, we, do we know what he, what he made of it? You know, how he dealt with the transition from uh, background figure to man in the hot seat, you know, carrying all, all this responsibility? Do we, he was frightened. Uh, he was, he, was frightened. he was frightened. 
And he was frightened because nobody had given him any training at all. Uh, he didn't have any political nous. He didn't really know who the politicians were. He'd been at sea since he was a little boy. And um, it was a frightening thing because Lloyd George was a very s smooth operator and Asquith was too. And they bamboozled the king. The very first thing that ever happened to him when he, when he became the king was they said, unless you... Um, create 500 peers to force through the liberal program, which obviously the Tory peers were all going to reject, which meant things like bringing in the old age pension and bringing in uh, votes for women and giving um, home rule to Ireland. Unless you bring all that in, then we're going to force you to make all these peers. And um, in fact, they weren't in a position quite to do that and they tricked him. But he did hold... He did hold his nerve during all that period remarkably well. And although he was a coward over the Russian question, throughout the reign, you watch him holding his nerve. After the First World War, as you probably know, the Labour Party rose uh, in popularity and became, uh, for the first time in history, eligible. It, it became an electable proposition. And in the early 20s, we see Ramsay MacDonald, the leader of the Labour Party, becoming the prime minister. And at that point, you would expect Queen Mary and George V to just throw up their hands and say, we can't cope with this. But they realised by then what their job was, which wasn't to be politicians. It was to suppress their own ideas and to support the constitution, which they did. And they also made friends with Ramsay MacDonald, leader of the Labour Party. They made friends with various trade union leaders they weren't just the king and queen for the Tories. They were the king and queen for everybody. That's probably the, the definition of doing a good job overall as a modern king or queen is, is to leave things more or less as you found them to ensure the persistence of this strange anachronism. It's, I think that's true. But also, I can't remember who said it. You probably can. If you're a real conservative, you realise that for, in order for things to appear to stay the same, you have to accept change. And mm. that, that was the thing that they they did realise. Queen Mary, I think particularly, who was much more intelligent than George V, but they, they both realised it. They, they realised you've got to accept the rise of socialism, you've got to accept the, the advance, very, very modest advance by modern standards of feminism. Mm. And then when the Irish thing blew up in everybody's face, they had to accept very much against their own private wishes that Ireland was going to become an independent country. Of course... Tragically, we know it, it wasn't a united independent country and the, the dreadful scars and divisions in Ireland are with us to this day. The book, you say, uh, sheds an entirely new light on both George V and his consort. Um, we've mentioned Queen Mary. I mean, you can't talk about, about George V without talking about Mary. But is, is the newness of Ridley's um, book partly that she has him share the limelight, if not the title of the book, um, with his wife? It because is. they seem quite an unlikely couple, for one thing. Yeah. Well, it was an arranged marriage, and they didn't get on very well to start with. I mean, for the first 10 or 15 years, it was very tetchy, and they spent as much time as possible apart. But they did have enough children to keep the show on the road. By the time after the First World War, they were beginning to fall in love, I think. I think they were genuinely fond of one another. Perhaps falling in love is putting it a bit strongly, but they were certainly very fond of one another. That's sort of new, the way that she brings up, because she's been through the archives, Ridley, uh, and 
she's brought out so many little nuances of their relationship. The other thing I think which is new, it's it may seem very petty, but she restores to Queen Mary the fact she was in fact quite an honest person. A lot of people believe Queen Mary went round antique shops and country houses pointing at things and saying, oh, I like that, but forcing people to give them to her. And that's obviously completely untrue from what Ridley writes. E.g., the Russian crown jewels, which Lenin put out for sale, she bought and she gave the money to the, to the Romanovs whenever possible. Obviously, she couldn't give, give Lenin's money to the Romanovs, but she did help surviving Romanovs with money and, and did pay lots of money for their jewels. This um, particular writing of wrongs obviously pleased you, but is there anything in the wealth of archival research that, that you know, really surprised you? Well, I think what surprised me is the overall picture, which we've been talking about. They were politically intelligent by the end. I think that was, that's the surprise of this book. And why she calls it Never a Dull Moment is that as all these things we've been describing, the reverse of Dull, the First World War, the Irish War of Independence, uh, the arrival of women's suffrage, the whole change in British society, the, the, the gradual breaking down of hierarchy, this very stiff, old-fashioned couple somehow or another managed to move with the times. And so they are the first people, King George V is the first person, for example, to do a, a broadcast, a Christmas broadcast. And so he did embrace the modern and he embraced the modern political situation. I think that's, um, that's something you don't get in any of the earlier books about him. Um, you're a royal biographer yourself, of course, your Prince Albert, the man who saved the monarchy appeared uh, just a couple of years ago. What would you say are the main challenges of of the trade? I mean, is it is it access to documents or is it overcoming people's assumptions about about these these people who they learn about in school or who they're probably predisposed to to loving or loathing depending on 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 their politics? It's a very good question. Certainly, having access to the archives, it, you can't do this unless you get into the Windsor. If you're doing British royals, into the Windsor archives. The Windsor archives have been revolutionised. There's now a wonderful professional lot of archivists there uh, who are extremely helpful, and it's really worth giving tribute to them. That was a relatively recent development, wasn't it? Very recent. It was pretty awful before, and there are still historians who say uh, the Royal Archive are hiding lots of dark (laughs) secrets. I don't know whether that's true or false, because I've never actually tried to do modern research in, in in the archive but with Prince Albert they were extremely helpful and then at the end they and I because I'd been through all the stuff were able to put together most of the Prince Albert material online now so that's a great development and certainly Ridley has has been through every blooming diary of George V they're incredibly boring I've read some of them (laughs) written in this very nice childish handwriting very clear to read at least unlike Queen Victoria so, yes, that's the first rule, to be able to, to have access to all the stuff. And I think the second thing that you need to work out if you're a royal biographer is why does all this stuff matter? And I think when I began doing a book about Queen Victoria, I thought it was really just a, a kind of entertaining exercise. It's only dawned on me, really, in the last decade, very, very slowly, 
that actually the system of government we have, it may seem absurd. It may seem like Gilbert and Sullivan with the Queen going into Parliament dressed up in crown and robes and all that. But when you look at all the alternatives, which, took, which were on glaring display during the reign of George V, fascism, communism, uh, dreadful regimes in Spain and so on, uh, you do realize there's something to be said for a constitutional monarchy. And it, in order for it to survive, it needs some pretty modest and probably rather ordinary people at the, at the core of it. If George V or Queen Elizabeth II comes to that, were interesting people like Elizabeth I or Henry VIII, then obviously the system wouldn't survive. They, they, they would want to be presidents. They'd, they'd want to have real power. It has to be very ordinary people, really, allowing this system to continue, but ordinary people with the political nous to see the point of it, to see that what people voted for in an election must be preserved. I mean, that's the core of it, really, that it, that it is basically a democratic system. Well, A.N. Wilson, I think we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for this uh, history lesson. I expect people wish learning about the royals was um, was that interesting at school. <laughs> well, that's very nice of you to say so. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to David Wallace Wells and A.N. Wilson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.